0: We have uh, some expressions here, uh, testimonies of how God is is using them in the kingdom of God. We're hearing that. And and I guarantee you're hearing it in uh, Faith Hall also. And that's what God wants to do. We're living in a time where, you know, we have the light of Jesus shining through us in the darkness that we see happening in our world today. And we're here to make a difference. We're to take every opportunity and turn it into, obviously, glory to God. And so I just pray this coming week that you would uh, pay attention to that, and we can all pay attention to it, and that God would use you powerfully. We heard a lesson here by another pastor in uh, Sunday school today regarding that. Sometimes we discount ourselves because we don't have, obviously, a theological degree, or we don't can't do this, or we can't do that, and all that, and that does not disqualify you. You've been called into the kingdom of God for such a time as this. And God will use you if you'll step out and believe him. You can start talking. And many times that's what we do. Start talking and allow God to take over and speak through you. And we know that obviously sometimes we uh, may feel like that our words are, we're kind of fumbling through our words. But actually God will turn those things around if we'll just be faithful. He can use that. And uh, he will speak through you. So be encouraged about that. We're going to talk about today something I think that we've been kind of on a series with, and that is our true identity in Jesus Christ. And I've mentioned along the way that if you don't know who you are in Christ and who He is in you, then you probably won't step out in, in faith in the things that I'm talking about today. You'll probably just pull back and say, "Well, you know, my time is up here," and. There's no use and so forth. But see, that's not who the Lord is in your life. And so knowing who you are in Christ and having that certainty and that confidence doesn't make us arrogant or, any, or cocky. What it does is humble our, humbles us because we know it's the Spirit of God flowing through us. But it also gives you confidence. You know, the word trust, actually, you can equate it to, to confidence. Okay. The Bible says this is the confidence that we have that he who began a good work within you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is the trust we have. It is trust, confidence, and these things. So you'll have confidence that God can use you. And so that identity and knowing that, we've been going through it, and we will for the next couple of weeks also, and looking at that, I pray that God would impart that truth to your hearts, and it will set you free. Obviously, it sets us all free. The truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we're going to look at two scripture passages here today. And the title is obviously our true identity, uh, the Bride of Christ. I don't know whether you've heard, I've talked about that a lot, but we are the Bride of Christ. And uh, so we're being prepared to meet the Bridegroom. And I'll tell you, it's uh, going to be a glorious occasion. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be wonderful. And if you're here today and you're born again, you're saved, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then actually you'll be a part of that, and we know that obviously sometimes we think, well, I sin, I stumble through life, and so forth. But God looks at you differently, and we talked about that. He calls you a saint, and I know that's like, wow, <laughs> does that refer to me? Yes, it does, and that's how God sees you because He doesn't. We we don't see ourselves the way God sees us, and so I pray that would shift that you would do it. It would not cause us to to be uh, boastful or act cocky or arrogant in any way and humble ourselves, but we know who we are in Christ. I pray that you will even know more today after we speak about this from the word of God. Two passages of scripture. First, Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to look. If you'd like to stand while we read this, certainly certainly make yourself available. Let's say it together. And Jesus answered and spake unto, again the parables unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king who made a marriage feast for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the marriage feast and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them that are are bidden. Behold, I have made ready my dinner and my oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come to the marriage feast. Okay, that's the first scripture. And we'll look at Revelation chapter 19. Let us rejoice and be exceedingly glad, and let us give the glory unto him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Amen. And it was given unto her that she should array herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they that are bidden to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true words of God. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Get the picture. What God is doing is preparing us. He's preparing us actually for the bridegroom. When Jesus comes back again. And he's preparing us for the marriage supper of the, of the Lamb. That's going to be a wonderful time when all the saints that have believed upon Jesus from, eternity, from way back from history past, right on up to the time Jesus comes again, it will be an exceedingly great time beyond anything we can imagine. I've always said this side of heaven, we know we're being prepared for obviously our eternal life. And that is true. And so I want to back up just a moment here and and reiterate about our identity in Christ because God wants us to put aside all the pretenses that come with religion. The Pharisees had religions, do's and don'ts and so forth, and all these laws and rules and regulations and so forth. It's about a relationship, not the religion. And I don't care, obviously, if, if you haven't sinned in 40 years, or you've never missed a church service, or if you read your Bible faithfully every day, if you aren't delighting yourself in your daddy, your father in heaven, but are resenting his stinginess, then you've missed the point. All these things that we do. And we know the story of the prodigal son, right? In Luke 15. Remember, the one son asked for his inheritance ahead of time. And so he went out, and he took his father's inheritance. And this is symbolic. The father is symbolic of God. And the son, actually, uh, both of the sons are symbolic of us. And one of the sons, he took all of his inheritance and went out and squandered it. Remember? Wild living, drinking, women, all those types of things. Where he came to an end of himself and he actually didn't have anything to eat. And he actually ate the pods that the pigs ate. He was eating the slop is what he was doing he was no he was low as you can get there and he thought about it and he said maybe if i turn and return to my father that he'll allow me to stay in the servants quarters maybe he'll just kind of let me back in the door again okay but remember when he turned what happened that the father was running to him and they came together and remember what god did he put the robe on him symbolic obviously there of, of many spiritual things The ring, symbolic, and the shoes there upon the sandals that were on his feet. So he provided for him way beyond what you would imagine because the father accepted him back. And he said, come on in because we've got the fattened calf. We're going to have a party here because my son, who was once lost, has now been saved. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We just sang it. Okay, and so they had a party. But the other son is not talked about a lot. And the other son obviously resented his uh, his brother from getting all the attention. And so he was complaining to his father, again, symbolic of God. He's complaining about that and and saying, how come you're doing all these things for your son? He went out and squandered everything. I've been here with you and I was behaving myself. And I didn't do all those things that my brother did and so forth. And yet it looks like he has been richly rewarded. Remember what the Bible says about that Luke chapter 15. He told him, the father said, son, you've been with me all these times. And he was saying that all these things have been given to you all this time. All of it was available to you. And yet you're complaining about it, you see. And that's why we are. We don't know what God has provided for us. And it's important that we know that. Perhaps you've heard the story of the man who bought his ticket on a transatlantic cruise ship. He filled his suitcases with cans of food and crackers and bottled water for the two-week journey. He was shown to his cabin and there he remained for the entire two weeks until just before the ship got to England. And on the final day before they arrived, there was a knock on his cabin door. And the chief steward asked him why he hadn't been showing up for his reserve table in the dining room. And the man replied, I didn't know meals were included in the ticket. Get the picture. There's so much that God has given us that we don't in any way tap into it. And understand it because obviously we don't know all that is ours as children of God here. We know we're going to heaven because we've accepted Jesus and we believe upon him. But we have life and have it more abundantly here on this earth. But sometimes we don't walk in that because we're ignorant of that. Remember, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. You got to know the truth. And so I'm here to tell you today what the Bible says about you and me. And sometimes we have missed it because we somehow, are, obviously, we know our past, know our present, and the things we, we're uh, sometimes worrying about the future and all these things around us that vie for our attention. And God wants to show us who we are in Christ. You see, we worry about our situation here in this world. We worry about inflation. We worry about all this, uh, the border situation. We worry about a blimp going overhead here. And what does that mean? We worry about the other uh, uh, UFOs that they're seeing out there that shooting down and doing this and that. And what is all that about, you see? But as children of God, we've got to know we have a heavenly father who watches over us. And nothing can touch you and me unless somehow God allows it. We've got to remember that. Because if we don't, we'll worry about this and that, and before long your stomach will be a knot. And God is saying, That's not what I want you to do. God is saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to know. And my relationship together, and this goes both ways. It's Christ in us, and we're in Christ. It goes both ways. And so I want to look at the day here, at the role of the church. And that's you and me, we're the church, as the bride of Christ. You're saved, you believed upon Jesus. And so we are part of that great gathering that will take place there at the, not the culmination of history, but you could say at the end of the age or whatever, because history will continue on certainly here. But it's a mysterious truth here about our relationship between God and his people. And actually Jesus is described as the eternal bridegroom. And we're spoken of as his bride. Obviously this is not a new theme in the Bible. Because God calls Israel his wife throughout the Old Testament there. And obviously there's a relationship between husband and wife. He calls them very intimate there. And he uses the language of adultery and infidelity. And in the New Testament, the, like the church, it's not spoken of as a wife there, but as the bride, betrothed or engaged and being made ready for her wedding day. The celebrated and much anticipated day when Christ comes for his church at the end of the age here. Jesus used many parables to describe this mysterious thing that he was ushering in called the kingdom of heaven. It's something obviously wonderful, and if you ever get a chance, look into it, Google it. What does it mean? And get an idea when we talk about the kingdom of heaven exactly what that is. And so in Matthew 22, the first scripture there we read, he spoke to them in parables. A lot of times they're like stories that Jesus told and they all held a meaning, very significant meaning here. And so what was happening in this particular story is saying that a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and he sent out all his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come again. He sent out other slaves saying, tell those who had been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now I want you to notice here what he's saying here. That one, the king called all. You see, everybody has an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ into their lives. The Bible, Jesus, the Word of God, says that He wishes none to perish, but all come to everlasting life. So that invitation is extended to all. Will all receive that invitation? No. But yet G- God is saying today he went to the Jewish people. He went to uh, the, those people and, and they rejected him overall. Not all because they're Messianic Jews back then and they are today. And even in the Old Testament, they believed upon God and, and had faith in him. But we see here the invitations offered to everybody. So don't ever think that somehow maybe God has forgotten about this group of people or that group of people. God is a just God and he will provide that for those who will hear him. Their people turned away. And sometimes we look at it and say, well, other religions, we know they already are stuck in that religion. And somehow we have a better opportunity to receive Jesus Christ. Well, a revelation of Christ in our hearts can take place no matter where you are or what you're involved with. God can break through, and that's why our prayers are so important. So he was inviting everybody to this wedding feast. Now, yes, come into the kingdom of heaven, definitely. But he's saying, I want everybody to attend this feast. I want everybody to sup with me, to sit down there at the table, as it may be said from that viewpoint, everybody here. And some, it says, well, they're not going to come. They refuse. And so he said, go back out there and tell everybody, tell the world. I bet you your heart is here like my heart. I want everybody to know Jesus. How about that? Amen. Can you say amen? I want everybody to know Jesus. I want everybody to come to the fullness of what he desires for our lives today, to have that abundant life. I want everybody in the world to know that. Well, I'm not naive enough to know some people will reject Jesus Christ. Some people will say, well, I believe in God, but I know there are many ways to heaven And Jesus is not the only way like you and you old preacher saying this and that. But see, the Bible tells us differently. There's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ uh, as the Lord, the one who gave his life for all of mankind and all who will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But not everybody that I will call upon him. Not everybody will humble themselves. Many people will say, I've done enough good works to be able to get in heaven. Some people will say, well, I haven't really sinned and been as bad as the neighbor down the street or some of the stuff we see on TV, but, but we, I won't accept Jesus Christ. I don't really need forgiveness and so forth. Come on. And so there's some that will reject his free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's what he's saying today. He's saying, go out into the highways and byways of life and share about the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So. If you talk about it in Matthew here, everything you're talking about in life, everything in worship, everything in our relationship to God, point to a single climactic event, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. We talk about it a little bit here. So get a glimpse of this when we look at it there in the book of Revelation that, that we read here. And it says at the end, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It will take place in history at the end of the age, not not the end of the world, but end of the age. There's a difference there certainly here. And then verse 7 tells us that in heaven, all of the saints and angels are awaiting this simple climactic event, the marriage supper of the Lamb here. And see, there's an incredible expectation, an anticipation that has been built from the foundation of the world. To witness this marriage of the Lamb of God and His Bride, the Church, you and me, it all's coming together. I want you to see how, who you are in that, because some of us say, "Well, I, I'm not worthy." No, you're not, but you are with Jesus, because He you made, He made you worthy. Some people say, "Well, I'm flawed here and there, and I've stumbled and fell, and all this stuff." We all do. That's why Jesus came to forgive us of our sins, to prepare us for this great feast here. So why would we be invited to our own wedding feast? It's because obviously to be invited and to accept that invitation makes us a part of the bride herself. And so what does it mean that she has made herself ready? It means that that bride, you and me has been prepared for at least 2,000 years and is the collection of broken, obedient, and priceless saints who have submitted to the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit to become this spotless bride from way 2,000 years ago. They have submitted themselves to the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit in their lives to be prepared for this feast. How do you do that? You surrender. You see, we surrender when we come to Jesus because we realize through conviction, through a revelation of the Holy Spirit, that somehow we can't save ourselves. And we all of a sudden realize that amazing grace that God sent his only begotten son in the world and he took our place. You see, Jesus takes our sins on him. We take his righteousness. It's called the great exchange, actually, theologically. The great exchange. He's changed. We exchange our sins for his righteousness. Good news. That's the best news you'll ever hear because you'll live forever. If you believe and you receive and and certainly God will, will provide that for you here. And so what does it mean here when you're cleansed? Because every day in a Christian's life should be a life, a day of surrender. A surrender to the Holy Spirit of God. To do his cleansing work in preparation for you and for me. I know you get busy and I get busy. And sometimes I neglect this, but it really is about surrender. The whole Christian life is about surrender. You're no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. You're no longer Lord of your life. Jesus is Lord of your life. You gave him your life. And so you've taken on that great exchange and you obviously became a new creature in Jesus Christ. You became new. He exchanged all that stuff. He changed your heart. You begin to see people differently. You begin to see circumstances differently. There's a new way of living. Things change in our lives. When Jesus Christ has come into your life, you've been born again. You've been saved. And so that cleansing work that the Holy Spirit is doing in my life and your life on a moment-to-moment basis is preparing us for that marriage feast of the Lamb. Hallelujah. Amen. That's good news. going to be wonderful. It's going to be glorious. I know that your word is used all in, throughout Christianity and all that and, and all. But it cannot describe what the inheritance and, and what's been laid up in heaven for you and me. And I even talked about the fact here last week that that's already there for you and I. We have to believe and receive it here. Obviously, we know we as created humanity. Turned our backs on our creator. And we went on a path of our own. Ignoring the, uh, the, 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 the pleas of our suitor. Who is God himself. And we immersed ourselves in sin. And made ourselves unworthy of being that spotless bride. But Jesus came and changed all that. He came. That's why he's worthy. Worthy is the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist saw, said when he saw Jesus coming. He said this, and so we see here Christ redeems us with his own life so that we can be embraced by the love of the bridegroom, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So why does the Bible use the picture of the bride and groom and marriage supper? Why does he do this here? I believe and think this is an awful, awesome and difficult image to get our heads around here. Well, we know for men, we can understand the bridegroom's perspective. And then women can understand the bride's perspective here. And what this picture, the parable or analogy communicates is, is just how passionate God is for you and me. How passionate God is for you and me. The picture communicates that God longs for his cherished bride to join him in heaven. The whole thing is setting up that we would live eternity with God almighty. That's why when people reject Jesus, what they're saying is, I don't want to live in eternity with you. And so when they face God, they're basically saying, I don't want that. And God says, okay, because see, he will not force us. It's a choice that you and I make and all who receive Jesus Christ in their lives. And some will reject that free gift, the indescribable gift. The Bible talks about it. And so we see here that God longs for his cherished bride to be prepared, to be ready, because he could come back. And I don't know when he's coming back, but I know he's coming back. And I know the Bible is true, and I know every jot and tittle, And you look at the Word of God, it has come to pass, is coming to pass, and will come to pass. Every bit of the Word of God is infallible and errant, and it is God-breathed, Holy Spirit-breathed for those men who pin that very breath of God and the heart of God so that you and I would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we have 66 books, enough, obviously, You've heard of people in prison, Japan, when in World War II, there were those men that were captured by the Japanese and they were in cages there. And somehow one man got like just a couple pages. They ripped from the Bible and gave them a page and they read. They read the from the like the two little pages they had. I mean, you're talking about nothing as far as the size in comparison with the size of the Bible. And actually through that, they had hope. They believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't have hardly anything in the Bible, but they believed because of that the word of God. See, that's what we're talking. God longs for us to spend eternity with us. And the image of God who enjoys us and is filled with affection for us, embracing us in the middle of our weaknesses, our faults, and our failures. He embraces you and me. You see, the fact of the matter is, is you cannot change God's opinion of you you cannot make God love you anymore and you can't make God love you any less. You cannot change his opinion of you and you go, well, what if I do something wrong and I've, I have all this and that you have not changed your opinion of God. He loves us with an everlasting love and the circumstances of life will not separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the good news. You begin to realize that not just from a, from a preacher, from a pulpit, but I'm talking about living this and seeing that in your heart of hearts. You cannot change. He will not. He loves us. And He is passionate about me and you. I can't grasp that, can you? You know, see, you can't change God's mind about you. He's pleased with you because you bear the image of His only son, Jesus. You wear His his Son's blood. You're covered uh, in His love and God sees nothing but his own son. Hallelujah. Whoa. Nothing you can do and not do will make God love you any more or less. God loves you because he chose you. God doesn't make mistakes. The glorious thing about it is is that you've accepted that love and you've received his forgiveness. Then you get to enjoy the very pleasure that God has for you. Can you obviously, can you receive the truth that God delights in you and me? Not because of who we are, you know we just saw uh, a a sermon on Peter <laughs> Peter was used as far as the church establishing being used established the church, the beginning of what God had planned there and man, he was a mess, open mouth inserted foot, and he just stumbled and fell and he did a lot of different things and I mean just bad things and, re- and denied Jesus there and he said, "I'd never do that." And yet he did and see that amazing grace was extended to Peter that Peter was used in the kingdom of God. He loved him and he said, I'm going to use you in spite of yourself. You see, God is not in any way puzzled and sort of like confused by our humanity. He made us. He knows in Psalm 103 that we are but as dust. (laughs) He knows. He knows you and me. He knows what I'll do tomorrow. He knows what I've done in the past. He knows what I'll do in the future. And what? He still loves me. Now that's the greatest truth you could ever, ever imagine. You don't ever get anything out of this except for that. He loves you. We work and we strive. We try to get his acceptance and so forth. When Jesus said, it's finished. I've done it all. Believe upon me. Allow me to put my righteousness in you so that you put your sins on me. God is saying that he's preparing. And this is a picture of Christ, the bridegroom and the church, his bride here. He buys her back from where she had been, paying the most costly a price to save her and in the process wins her affections. I want to tell you, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for a bride. Ever thought of yourself as a bride? with the bride of Christ. The bridegroom. Last weekend, (laughs) Janet will know what I'm getting ready to say here, and Kathy also. Uh, I officiated at Taylor and Emily' uh, wedding. It was in Alvin, and I told y'all that I I toured Alvin in the middle of the night. I know Alvin now like the back of my hand, but then. I, Cindy, I never thought, well, something's happened because, you know, he's not calling. I finally called her and said, I- I'm lost. I'll be there as soon as I can get there. I saw some fam- few familiar landmarks because we lived in Pearland for years and knew something about Alvin. But I, lo- I got lost and got turned around You know, in the dark. And some of those country roads back there in Brazoria County, they obviously, they're not even marked. <laughs> I mean, I-, I never heard anything like this. I said, are we living in like a... a uh, 200 years ago, what? But there was no signs. There was nothing going back there. And I stop and look and all, and, and it was so dark that night, there was no moon that was shining on the signs and so forth. I had to squinch, I looked, and finally, and the roads, would there would be L curves all, all the way. So you had to be careful so you didn't run over in a ditch or whatever. Nobody would never find, I'd be still in that ditch. Nobody came, went that way. I don't think anybody's been that way in maybe 50 or 60 years. But I'm telling you, but anyway, out there in the middle of the boonies, I mean boonies. And I was telling a couple of the sheriffs there who were there at the party. I said, you guys are out here in the boonies. And they went, no, we're from Lamarck. I said, Lamarck's still the boonies he laughed. He said, yeah, it is. And so it was beautiful. You come up out of this place and it was a, a beautiful like uh, setting for inside reception and so forth. And then it had a, a smaller type. with was like a chapel type of thing with open air. And we had between 200 and 250 people there. Anyway, I was standing up front and I was waiting. And Emily had wanted me to marry them and read from her Bible she got as a child. And so I stood up here and Taylor came in, the groom, and stood beside me. Okay, And then finally, when all the bridesmaids and the groomsmen came down and so forth, they opened the door and there was Emily, radiant, I mean beautiful, the bride coming down the aisle with her father and walked down the aisle. She was radiant and she was smiling, smiling from ear to ear. She had obviously come to meet her groom. And I was sitting there standing, and sometimes I get emotional because it's so—it's such a touching moment <clears throat> that standing there to be a part of it, and, and she walked down, and finally, you know, of course, who will give this man to be married to this this woman, and Frankie said, you know, her mother and I, and she they stepped up, stood, and I talked to them about, obviously, the declarations and the charges. They turned each other and spoke their vows, to one another and then eventually obviously the pronouncement and the kiss and the bow the presentation of the the couple and then the uh, presentation I thought about this in relation when I put this together the radiance there they were like going all over the place going out there to ponds getting their pictures taken they were like walking on air I could see I looked at them and I mean, there was not a worry. They were together. I mean, it was tranquil. you talking about bliss. Okay, if you use that word, it doesn't really adequately explain it. But it was awesome to see that the bride and the groom come together like that. They were happy. Came together all those people that were gathered to witness that. And I thought about it from the spiritual standpoint. You think about it. We're the bride. And we're standing there. One day that door will open. And we will see the bridegroom. And we will be prepared. We will be obviously without spot or blemish. It says wrinkle. I always thought how can that happen? Because I'm wrinkled and I got spots and everything else. But God has a way. He said I'm going to do this work in you. I'm going to get you ready. I know we participate with him and we want to be ready. We want to love him, obviously, the way he loves us. And that I'm going, Lord, I know you love me, but somehow I I want to love you back. And I want everything that I do to flow from a heart of love for you. And not something that I'm feeling like I'm obligated because because of my humanity or because I'm a preacher or whatever it may be. And so I have to reexamine that every now and then. But we have a bridegroom who is passionate and ready and wanting, ready for the father. Go back and get my church is what he's going to say. Because even the son, the Bible says, doesn't know that day, or, that day or hour. Only the father knows according to what the word says. But that one day the father will say, it's time. Go back and get him. What a glorious day that that will be. And you may feel flawed and you may feel less than radiant, less than beautiful, less than desirable, but God doesn't. God literally rejoices over you and He delights in us. He's coming back again. In Revelation twenty two seventeen, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. So how love affects our obedience here. And why do we obey? Because we must. You see, a, bl- a slave obeys for this reason because he has no choice because of duty a soldier obeys orders because it's his duty because it's of its reward a laborer in a factory obeys to get up get paid here again we respond in obedience out of love and when we begin to see how much jesus loves us We'll see that we're free to come back and offer him ourselves and love him in that manner as much as we can. One day we'll love him. You know, the two greatest commandments, the love, the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm going, Lord, I pray that prayer. and I know you do. I pray that that would work in my heart. The Holy Spirit would do that because that's not always true. God's got to do it in my life. He's got to do a supernatural work in my life. And maybe you feel the same way in that preparation and what we're talking about here. Obviously, I'm not saying to obey only when you feel like it. But obviously, but imagine what would happen if you obeyed because you desire to obey. One pastor says, A life characterized by affection-based obedience is a life in which a person knows that he or she is so loved by God and so loves God in return. That obedience is the only reasonable response to anything that God wishes. For the sake of love, they give everything to find no sacrifice too great. Obviously. We've got to know. And we've got to identify ourselves as voluntary lovers of God, certainly. And that's what that whole this whole thing is about here. Remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10? Remember what happened there? Martha was busy in the kitchen. She was fixing things. Man, Jesus had come. And here we go. Get in there and fix a good supper and all this other stuff. And what was Mary doing? Seated at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And remember what Jesus said? This one that sat at my feet, that will never be forgotten. And that's what God is calling us. She loved Jesus. Martha did too. But she loved Jesus. And certainly she knew, obviously, that something special was about this man here. And her motivation was her love for Christ. There are two forces vying for our attention, our affections here. One of them, obviously, is... It's the same there. Those attentions that 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 are vying for our attention. First of all, Satan is seeking to seduce you to satisfy his desire to own you and destroy you and make you his slave. Jesus, on the other hand, is wooing and courting you as his bride to make you spotless and infinitely perfect for your wedding day with him that you might rule with him forever. But Satan seduces you. And that's what we see today with the old expression is they're looking for love in all the wrong places. They're trying to be filled with whatever it may be. Okay, we see and we know the list of things that we can be filled with instead of being filled with Jesus. We know that. There are two things. There are two options. There are two uh, things that are drawing us. One is the wooing of Christ. And this coming week, I want you to ask the Lord to let you see his wooing of you. And you know what wooing means? W-O-O-I-N-G. It means Drawing. That means, obviously, at times, he, you get a glimpse of that and you feel, oh, gosh, this is good. And then maybe next week, come back and testify. I believe God's going to do that in your life. Jesus is wooing us, folks. He's getting us ready. This is not some type kind of a blank slate that we're involved in. This is life in preparation to meet the bridegroom. All of that is what we're talking about today. Obviously, God desires that you and I be all slowly by the pleasures available, only through a relationship with him. Everything else we think, I don't know, it's just it's temporary, right? It doesn't last. But he wants us to come to a place to where we see and we know that we know that the utmost pleasure is in him and in that relationship. One day, the Bible says, we'll see him as he is. Until then, we see through a glass darkly. And we look and squinch, but we do see. And every now and then, God gives us a glimpse. He's going, man, you're doing something good here, Lord. You're doing something great. God's plan is amazing. He created a bride for his son, watched her fall into imperfection, and then offered his son to redeem the bride for himself. Wow. He did that, you see. God was confident. Let me share this with you because this is important. God was confident in knowing that he endowed his bride with longings that she could not ignore. He knew that Satan would attempt to seduce his bride, to manipulate these longings that God had given us. And even then, God didn't get nervous or insecure. God knew what He had to offer and that it is infinitely better than anything Satan had to offer. Even as the bride of Christ has run to and fro looking to satisfy these longings in all the wrong places, God has remained confident that His bride would find fulfillment only when she returned to the identity and destiny for which she was created. To be the bride of Christ. God's confident. Confident that that's what's going to happen. Paul was a man romanced by the gospel. He was a love struck man. In Philippians 3, nine, he wrote. I count all things to be a loss. In view of the surpassing value. Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish. So that I may gain Christ. He knew Paul knew we are defined by the one who pursues us. We're not just a sum total of what we accomplish or perform, because a lot of times you ask, well, what do you do? Well, uh, I do this and I do that and all that. We uh, we identify by our work and whatever. and, and, And God sees us differently. We obviously are defined by the one who pursues us. Sometimes we think that somehow we just all of a sudden came to Christ. That all of a sudden, man, I just, well, I need God now, okay, you know. No, you know what it was? God was drawing you by His Spirit. The Bible says that no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. It was God pursuing you and me. It wasn't like He lost us somehow, but we lost God. And in all this maze of life, God was right there pursuing us, knowing that He had a plan, knowing that He gives us that opportunity to to believe upon Jesus, to give our total being to Him, our total surrender to Him, that one day we would become the bride of Christ and we would attend that great marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what it's all about, folks. God desired us and He pursued us. Many reject that offer. And many, obviously, are, in one way or another, cut out because of fear of rejection. You've heard people say, "I've done too much, too wrong. I've, I've, I've and it's too old. I'm too old. I, I haven't made a decision for. Christ. I haven't lived for Christ. I haven't really surrendered my life for Him to Him. And I feel like He's going to check me." That's a lie the enemy tells you. God Almighty is pursuing you and he's wooing you and he's drawing you and me. The story here, try to track with me, it's long, but I hope that I can get it across here. One man was the most shrewd business trader on the island and everyone respected him and his ability to buy things cheaply and sell them for more he had a knack for enhancing the value of the things that he obtained and at festival time this man came to the gathering and chose for himself a wife the custom was that he would return in a week and bring a cow or two to pay for the father to the father for her two or three cows would buy a fair to middling wife four or five would get you a very good one this man was interested In a plainly looking girl, her name was Sarita. And she was little and skinny, didn't have much of a figure. She walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked as if she was trying to hide behind herself. Her cheeks had no color, her eyes never opened beyond a slit, and her hair was a tangled mop half over her face. She was scared of her own shadow. Frightened by her own voice, she was afraid to laugh in public. She never romped with the girls, so how would she attract the boys? Her father was surprised when this man expressed interest in Sarita, but figured that if he got one cow, that would be worth it. At least he could get her married off. The day came for the cow or cows to be offered to Sam, Sarita's father. And through the jungle, the family and the village that had gathered witnesses seen could hear the sound of, of a cowbell being driven down the jungle path. Out into the clearing emerged one cow and then another and another until ten cows were driven by the man to Sam's hut. And then the man came into the hut and without waiting for a word from any of them, went straight up to Sam, grasped his hand and said, Father of Sarita, I offered ten cows for your daughter. And the father was speechless and the village began whispering what a fool this man was. They couldn't believe that this man had paid this unheard of price for a pitiful woman as Sarita. And as soon as it was over, this man took Sarita to the island of Cho for the first week of marriage. And then the man and Sarita disappeared for nearly a year as they began to settle down to family life. Festival time. It came again to the village the next year. And this man showed up with a beautiful woman. And all at the village were asking, Who is this woman? And what happened to Sarita? And then Sam recognized his daughter. Completely transformed and beautiful and approached this man. What happened? This is on, There's only one Sarita. His way of saying the words gave them a special significance. Perhaps he wished to say she doesn't look the way that you say she looked before. The villagers all made fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by Sam. You think that he cheated me? You think that ten cows were too many? A slow smile slid over his lips as he stood, as he shook his head. She can see her father and her friends again, and they can see her. Do you think anyone will make fun of us then? Much has happened to change her. Much in particular happened the day that she went away. You mean she married you? That, yes. But most of all, I mean the day I paid the price for her hand. In marriage. You ever think, he asked, what it does to a woman when she knows that the price her husband has paid is the lowest price for which she can be bought? And then later, when all the women talk, as women do, they boast of what their husband paid for them. One says four cows, another maybe six. How does she feel? The woman who was sold for one or two. This would not happen to my Sarita. And then you paid that unprecedented number of cows just to make your wife happy. Happy, he seemed to turn the word over on his tongue as if to test its meaning. I wanted Sarita to be happy, yes. But I wanted more than that. You say she's different from the way they remember her. This is true. Many things can change a woman. Things that happen inside. Things that happen on the outside. But the thing that matters most is what she thinks about herself. In her father's house, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now she knows that she is worth more than any other woman on the islands. God wants a 10 cow bride for his son. He paid an enormous price for the bride. Satan laughed at God when God said, you and I were worth it. God paid with the life of his only son to redeem you and me from unloveliness. And yet, she has become the most beautiful bride possible. That is the image of the bride of Christ. You get the picture. We're ugly. We look terrific. And then we turn to Jesus. and He made us beautiful. And one day, when we sit with him and we sup with him. That old hymn that says, It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Then we'll know and we'll understand. But right now we see him part. But one day we will see him as he is. Knowing who you are in Christ, and what he's done for you and me, and for all who believe and call upon his name, it's the most wonderful, wonderful. A knowledge and promise and believing that you could ever have, because when you begin to see yourself not as that old person there, who was rejected by the world, rejected by family many times, rejected by society many times, rejected and walked away from, betrayed, and all the things that we could, words we could use, has been accepted by his beloved son. Jesus Christ. It will be worth it all. We need that revelation. We begin here, right? And then it sifts to here. Because we've got to know this. And this is the truth because the truth will set you free. The price that was paid for you and me to redeem us from the hands of Satan because the Bible says actually That we were obviously enemies of God. And we had the wrath of God coming against us. But then we changed because he revealed that love. The love of his only begotten son who gave his life for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth. Thank you, Lord. It's beyond our comprehension, the marriage supper of the Lamb beyond our comprehension, the bride of Christ. We can't wrap our heads around it. But Lord, we believe it. And I believe, Father, today, as you have spoken, because we know you always speak, that you would speak to every heart and let them know that the price has already been paid. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for his redemptive work. And whoever calls, whoever believes, whoever puts their faith and trust in him, one day will sit there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, we we want to be ready. Make us ready, Lord. Help us to surrender to the cleansing work of your Spirit each and every day. When we stumble, Lord, we confess, repent, and get back up again. We know, Lord, today that we're flawed. We have all these things, this luggage, and yet, God, you still went to Calvary for us. And we know, Lord, today you're doing a mighty, mighty work in each of our lives, and you're doing a work in this church. Father, we surrender this day and ask you, don't stop. Don't stop. Keep going, Lord. Go deeper and deeper. And making us more like Jesus. We don't like the circumstances, Lord, and we scream when like we just scream out when these things get tough. But Lord, we know you're not going to give up on us. We know, Lord, today that you're working even through those most difficult circumstances. To make us more like Jesus. Help us to walk that out each and every day. Thank you for your presence here today. And thank you for what you're doing here in the lives of these, those who will watch this on YouTube and beyond. Thank you for what you're doing here at Lighthouse Fellowship, what you're doing here next door with with Save Savage, what you're doing here in the the city of League City, Houston, Texas, Texas and the United States and around the world. Because we know, Lord, you're on the move. And we're believing you for great and mighty things. So, Lord, we will praise you and thank you forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your attention. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And give you peace. And all of God's people said. Amen.